Hey, well, welcome. My name is Aiden. We are going to jump uh, right in today. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, kind of picking up where we left off uh, last week. If you tuned in, kind of dialed your radio in with us. Um, but we are going to jump right in. Uh, I feel like th- this passage is, has so much. This whole chapter, chapter 15, is 58 verses. And so it's kind of just like this giant burrito that you pick up from Chipotle and it's got everything in it and you're not exactly sure how to how to come at it. But last week, we looked at kind of part one of this two-part kind of conversation about where Paul is real explicit about what the gospel message of Jesus is. This message that was passed on to him, he passed on to them as the most important thing, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared to the disciples, to Paul himself, to over 500 people, that he appeared. And what we want to kind of continue into today, and what we want to look at, is what, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean? What does it mean for, for us and for our life and, and even for the future of the world that we live in? Because what last week points us to is that everything hinges on this resurrection of Jesus. We said it's the reference point for everything. Everything in the future, everything in the past, everything in our present, everything in the life of following Christ, the reference point is the resurrection. And so we want to kind of jump into this because what Paul is kind of coming at is that there's some different things that are, are unclear to the church in Corinth. That they understand that Jesus rose from the dead, but, but they don't really understand this bodily resurrection and what is to come, and he's clarifying that. And what you and I both know is that if something is unclear, if it's abstract, if it's not very specific, it's just not very helpful. Like if someone's giving you instructions or directions, and they're like, you know, you're going to want to keep driving and you're going to turn left at a tree and that should get you where you need to go. You're like, I'm just going to Google Maps this because that's not actually very helpful. That's kind of vague. And so Paul is trying to put some skin on, that is not a pun for today, uh, some of the different different aspects of what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. And so the, the Corinthians that he's writing to, they were this, this pagan culture. They, they, they were not necessarily people that were brought up in the, the way of God. And similar to those that were Jewish Sadducees, kind of a religious group, neither group believed in a bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in this bodily resurrection as much as maybe in amorphous, abstract existence where we kind of went into the grave, this idea of just vague death, and maybe we became spirits. But this idea of a bodily resurrection was almost off-putting to the people in Corinth that Paul is writing to. It might be to you today. And so it's worth asking as we kind of walk through this in the back of your head, we all have uh, just a vague belief of either what happens when we die, but also what this whole world is coming to. Like, when we die, what, what happens? For some of you followers of Jesus, like, you're like, oh, he's nice, we're with Jesus, he's going to fly off to heaven, whatever. But, but that question of what happens when we die, and, and what is this whole world, what is it coming to, they matter, they play off of each other, and Paul kind of unpacks this in his passage. In, in chapter, in, in 15, verse 19, we kind of referenced this last week, but Paul says, if only for this life we have hope, guys, I'm going to do my best to remember this, Clicker, if only from this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of most people to be pitied. But verse 20 says, but Christ has indeed raised from the dead. And he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We talked about this last week about how, how Paul's like, if Jesus is not raised, this is all a joke. But he goes on to say, but Christ has raised. And so therefore, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This idea of first fruits would have been a Jewish festival that they would have celebrated, where they would have the first fruit, the first uh, 
items of the harvest. You know, the, the grapes are starting to pop up. We've got the first grapes that we celebrate those. We give them to God and we celebrate God in those. But what a lot of authors say is that what that first fruit is, is a picture of the rest of the harvest. Once the harvest had begun, the rest of the harvest was certain. That the, those first fruits are a picture of, of what's coming next. Uh, we used this picture before on Easter a couple years ago, but here in Ohio, if you're watching from Ohio, you know what it's like. It's March, it's still like 20 degrees, and you're like, is spring going to come? And then you start seeing these things popping up. The, these yellow daffodils kind of start popping up in random spots. It might be covered in snow, but you see them come, and it's this picture that, oh, it's still cold. I still got to defrost my car for a couple more weeks, but spring is coming. The resurrection of Jesus is that first harvest, that first bloom, that first sign of what is coming. Not in a vague, abstract sense, but in a very real sense. Jesus' resurrection validates his teaching. It solidifies our forgiveness. It demonstrates his authority over death. It affirms that he is not just an example of a good moral teacher, but it is also the picture of beginning of new life for us, of what is to come. And so Paul, for, for a, a lot of verses here, he unpacks this picture of the resurrection and what that means for us. And he, use, he uses various analogies to, to paint a picture of this resurrection body in light of Jesus. And so we're going to kind of just read through it. We're going to dig through it. And then we're going to kind of take a, little, a couple uh, kind of implications of what that means for us. So chapter 15 is where we'll be. We're going to pick up uh, in 35. And I'm going to do my best to keep up with this clicker. Paul says this in response to the resurrection of Jesus. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Which we may ask that question. Like we're talking about, we're talking about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the dead in light of the resurrection of Jesus in the Corinthians ask, how are the dead raised? Like what does this look like? What kind of body will they come? Paul says, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined, and each kind of seed gives its own body. They're asking, Paul, what what, what kind of body? Like, is it reanimation? Like like a zombie, like coming right back, like bringing that dead body right back to life? Is that, like, are we talking about angels? Are we talking about being ghosts or spirits? He doesn't talk about those things. It's not reanimation of our dead corpse. But it's not, sometimes we have this picture like, well, we die and become an angel. The angels are jealous of us, is what the scriptures say. That we're greater than an angel as we're, as we're resurrected. We're not ghosts, right? Like sometimes there's almost this cartoon picture. You watch cartoons where like someone like dies and like their little like spirit ooh, comes up out of it, like this kind of ghostly thing. It's not that. But Paul time and time again says this body, and he paints this picture of like a seed, of a seed that is sown, that is put in the ground, that is dormant, becomes something else, Right? Now, if I plant a seed, if I plant an acorn, it's not completely different than that tree that is to come, right? Like there's, there's still a similar essence of these two things, but they are not the same, right? They're not the exact same. An old theologian named Richard Hayes says, the analogy of the seed enables Paul to walk a fine line, asserting both the radical transformation of the body in its resurrected state, yet its organic continuity with the mortal body that precedes it. We, we, see, we see this in Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits. When Jesus was resurrected, his body, his dead body, almost the seed was planted. It was sown, right? They, but when he was raised, they knew it was him. They hung out with Jesus. They ate fish with Jesus, walked around with Jesus. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. But he was not the same. 
that there's weight here to the, this bodily resurrection, not this amorphous spiritual, we're going to float around, but this bodily resurrection. My friends, Paul is going to unpack this using a lot of different analogies, but there's weight to this idea that there's this body. Look at what he goes on to say. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. The body is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is that the seed that is sown is not altogether separate, different, whole different thing than what is to come. But the animating power and nature of our resurrection bodies is different. That these bodies are running on flesh and blood and natural matter, right? But what Paul says in this is that the body that is raised to imperishable, the new bodies that we're going to be given are run on the imperishable glory and power of the Spirit. Look at what he goes on to say. Um, The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the earthly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, that we descend from Adam, that we come from Adam, that we inherit the sin of Adam, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, recreated, raised to new life in Christ. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Why? 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 That he's saying we're not just going to come back the same and we get to go into heaven with the same, the same physical bodies that we had on earth because those are corrupted by sin. They're imperishable. They're weak. That our bodies will be recreated yet still a body. That we don't use old, withered, dusty, broken beams to build a house. But we still use, beam, we use new beams on a house to build a new house, but it's still a house. But it's built, animated by new power, new life. Now look at this. This is the last section Paul says here. I know it's a lot. Walk with me. Pick up verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. What he's saying is that those that have passed, that we have laid in the grave, that we will be resurrected to new life. And there's a lot of questions there, right? Of what what that looks like. The spirit of God animates this new life. But what Paul is saying, like, what about those of us that haven't died? What about when Jesus returns, resurrection? What about those that haven't died? We will not all sleep. We will not all be dead. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. The dead that are raised, raised to this new body he's painting a picture of. And we who are still alive, we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. And he references Isaiah. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he goes to Hosea. These old prophets, the Old Testament. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Old, imperishable, sinful, weak body. And the power of sin is the law that accuses us. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. This is all coming from the resurrection of Jesus. Let nothing, or therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.
Paul goes on to paint this entire picture that we in our culture, maybe we have some vague ideas of heaven, of resurrection, of what this looks like, kind of like, what does this all mean? The Corinthians are like, what are you talking about resurrection? Like, when we die, we're just kind of a, like a spirit, and we just kind of disappear. Like, what are you talking about? And Paul's painting this picture that it's not the same thing as being brought back for more. It's not just more of the same, but it's not altogether different. And there's weight to this and this how this plays out for those of us that have passed, for those of us that are still alive. He's unpacking this for a long chunk that there is this weight. There is this weight to the bodily resurrection. But what, what, what are the implications of this? Like, we're like, okay, so we're gonna, what is that? Why does this matter? Why, why does it matter that it's a body, not just a vague spirit? Like, why does this matter? And Paul is gonna unpack some of this. But I think the, the, first, the first kind of implication, the first thing that this means for us as we kind of walk through this kind of interesting passage is Jesus as the first fruits of what is coming. That we look to Christ in order to look to the future. What is the implications of this? It's maybe simple, but it's profound, that hope. There's an implication of hope that, that death is not the end. And sometimes we get wrapped up in kind of maybe an abstract concept of this, but there's not a lot of specificity. So sometimes it's a little bit helpful, but it's not entirely helpful. And no, no matter who you are or where you are, we all have this deep sense, regardless of what we believe, that we almost have our fingers crossed, that we hope this isn't all that there is. It's, it's, it's worth asking, what, what, what do you believe? I said this earlier, what do you believe about all these things? About when we die, about the future? Like, what is that, that hopeful belief in the Lord of the Rings towards the end when everything, when evil is defeated? Uh, Sam, one of the hobbits, looks to Gandalf and says, is everything sad going to become untrue? And we all have that within us. Is everything sad that we walk through and that we experience and that we see, is this going to become untrue? Or is eventually we are just going to cease to be a part of it? Hope, if we're honest, hope becomes a vague kind of Christianese word. It's just a word that gets thrown around that doesn't have any teeth to it. Hope is not simple, wishful. It's not just simply wishful thinking. But it's a deep-seated expectation that motivates, that satisfies, and that assures us to the depths of who we are. I think of my, my family is Irish. My name is Aiden Finn. It's very Irish. And if you have a family member, make a big old poster board lineage thing. If you follow my dad's 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 dad, it's dad, I don't know. Came from Ireland. Came from Ireland looking for a better life, looking for a new beginning that whoever my great, 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 great grandpa Finn was, that that decision, that hope of a new life, of a new beginning caused action. It caused decision caused risk, it caused movement, that it wasn't just the, maybe someday, but this hope motivated to take a step. Hope is not just a wish in the back of your head, but hope changes everything about the way we live here and now. Look at what Paul says as he talks about death. Verse 24, we're kind of backtracking a little bit. He says, then the end will come. He's kind of unpacking this picture of, of what will happen when, when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That there is this hope that the enemy of death, that you know it's an enemy and I know it's an enemy, that will be ultimately and forever defeated by Jesus. Then jump to 54. 
when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That there's not this fingers crossed for a better tomorrow, someday we'll see what happens, but there's victory through Jesus who has laid death in its grave and who will ultimately defeat the presence and the enemy of death. That Jesus has defeated the power of sin at the cross, has overcome death at the resurrection, and we look forward to the resurrection where Jesus ultimately completes his work. But this gives us perspective for our suffering and our pain here and now. That our culture, oftentimes, we want to avoid it. We want to hide from it. We want to medicate it. But we look out through cultures, we look out through time, we look at your own life, that suffering and pain is this enemy that is present. But this hope that Jesus will finally defeat it, that Jesus has risen from the grave, that Jesus has put on flesh and become one of us, it gives us perspective for suffering here and now. I want you, I want you to think about this. Jesus, resurrected from the grave, his earthly, his, his new heavenly body, resurrected, and he bears his earthly scars. As we see Jesus into eternity, he bears his earthly scars because his suffering led to glory. Look at, look at Revelations 5. There, this, these pictures of the throne. Then I saw a lamb, it's Jesus, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Dead things don't stand. Dead things aren't standing, looking as if they've been slain. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is reigning and ruling in, in heaven, looking, bearing the scars of his suffering here on earth. Look at when he raised. And Luke, they were startled, frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts rise up within you? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Why is Jesus pointing to their hands and feet? Because he still got holes in them. From when the Roman guards nailed him to the cross, that Jesus' resurrected body has the wounds of his suffering. He says, it's myself, touch and see me, not a ghost. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. That Jesus, resurrected in his glory, bears the suffering, bears the scars of this earth. It tells us something. It tells us that our pain and the suffering that we endure, that we walk through in this life, it is not erased. It is not thrown away and ignored and discarded, but it is redeemed. It is redeemed. There's a, a song lyric from a, an artist who's a follower of Jesus who says, either nothing is wasted or everything is. This idea of like nihilism that this all just doesn't matter and, and nothing matters, just live your life. Either everything's wasted and your pain, sorry about your bad day, doesn't matter, or we follow the way of Jesus, the hope of resurrection where our suffering is redeemed. I, I don't, I don't, so for some of us, I don't, I, don't, I don't want this to be vague. I don't want this to be trite. Some of you have, have lost children, have lost spouses. You've been wrongly accused. You've been in relational turmoil. You dealt with lifelong suffering. Maybe you're walking in it right now. 
and your kind of day-to-day walk, your daily existence is not something that you would have planned. I, I don't know what your story is. I can't think of every example. But you walk in suffering. In the hands of Jesus, the hope of the resurrection points us to the fact that it is not wasted. That is what hope is. In Romans 8, Paul is painting this kind of, this large kind of celestial picture of of renewal of all things that the earth and nature grown to be recreated, grown to to be healed. And Paul says that we consider our present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. That what we walk through, we can't even compare it to what is to come. And it is not wasted. The gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, point to restoration of all things new is a message of redemption, of restoration, of recreation, of renewal. He didn't scratch out, start over, erase, crumple up and try again. One author says he doesn't say all new things, but he says all things new. That our bodies, that our suffering, that our lives, not crumpled up, let's do something else, but they're renewed, restored. All things new is what Revelation 21 points us to. The implication is hope for the here and now, but also responsibility in the here and in the now. Because what you do matters. Your suffering matters. And your life here and now, it matters. Paul, I, I want to acknowledge this whole passage that Paul goes through. We only read like half of this whole chapter. That it, it's like, okay, what, what's Paul saying here? What's he doing? But if you, if you kind of miss this whole picture, you're scratching your head at all these pictures of seeds and a perishable and Adam and new Adam and death and victory. Underline the last verse. Because Paul's description, he did, was 57 verses. You're like, all right, dude, you know when someone's telling a long-winded story, you're like, just get to it. Paul gets to verse 58 where he says, Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor, your suffering, your toil, your investment, what you do for the sake, it is not wasted. It is not for no reason. It is not in vain. That's why the bodily resurrection matters. It is not wasted. Paul does not get to the end of this whole picture. He's painting for the Corinthians and say, so we've got something to look forward to. So just hang out. Look, we've got something to look forward to. But he encourages the Corinthians that this future resurrection is perspective and understanding and motivation for today. I want, I want to show you a couple quick pictures. For sometimes in our mind, or may, I'll at least share to my story, maybe you're similar to me. But t- sometimes we talk about the end times, we talk about death, and it can become abstract a little bit. It's heaven, and we're going to become angels, and it'll be nice, and there's streets of gold. I don't know. It becomes a little vague. And sometimes our hearts can become, there can be this disconnection that happens that we live life here on earth and I just have to, to pray a prayer. I just have to believe a couple things and then boo, I get to sail off to the high heavens one day. And so we kind of have this, this disconnection, right? Look at, look at what Paul says. Look at what Paul says in, in verse 30. He kind of paints the same picture. Paul says to the church, he says, your labor is not in vain. And then Paul mentions his labor. 
Paul says, as for us, why, why do we endanger ourselves every day? He says, I face death every single day. Just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and it's our city, he's almost alluding to this, this picture of, of gladiators. He's like, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, we talked about this last week, he says, what have I gained? And look what he says, if the dead are not raised, if there's not this bodily resurrection of the dead who are in Christ to look forward to, if they're not raised, he says what the gladiators probably said before they would go out and die in the field. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And some of us, some of us, we can kind of have that attitude as believers. This disconnection between what is and what will be. And we can be like, it doesn't matter what happens on earth for tomorrow, psh, we get to sail off to heaven. We get to eat and drink because luckily we pray to prayer. We get to go to a nice place when we die. So today, do your best. Try to be a good Christian. Try to follow the Ten Commandments, but you get to go to the good place. Eat and drink for tomorrow. We fly away. We get out of here. And we can kind of think this, have this, this mentality as believers. See, at the time of Jesus, there's these people, the, the Gnostics. You may have heard this idea of the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, basically their belief was that the physical, that the body was bad. What happens here doesn't matter because the physical is bad. Only thing that matters is the spiritual. And we're all spiritual, so that thing is good. We're going to be fine. This doesn't matter. And we can kind of functionally believe that, that God has just saved our spirit, our souls. Like there's just this spiritual thing that happens. And we, we want to make good decisions. We want to make practical decisions. And we want to follow Jesus with our lives because that's the right thing to do. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter that much because we pray the prayer and we get to go to the good place. And we get this boiled down, oversimplified, kind of abstract picture. And I think it's, it's not necessarily entirely wrong, but it's just not always helpful and it's a little bit oversimplified. I think a more helpful picture is something that looks a little bit more like this. That if we, go, if we flip to the end of your Bible, that there's this picture of new heavens, new earth, that God is going to redeem, restore, renew, resurrect heavens, earth. It's not this place we get off to, but the ultimate ending of all things is that God will recreate, restore all things. And that we here and now, that this, what the bodily resurrection points us to is that it matters. That there's this continuity. There's this continuity that matters. Look at what Paul says. We're going back to chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3 in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, No one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is in Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of the Lord, this day that Paul is talking about, the coming of Christ, where he's going to begin to set everything right, that this day will bring our work to light, that our whole life, that we are building something with materials. We're building something with materials of life. And what Paul is saying is that all of our work on that day will be brought to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. That's Christ. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. But yet we will be saved, even though one escaping through the flames. What's he saying? He's saying that what we build with here on earth matters. What you do matters because in this day, this day when Jesus comes, this fire that will come is a refining fire that will burn off the stuff that does not matter. The stuff that's focused on me and my comfort and my happiness, these worldly temporary things, they will burn up. And what will be revealed? Things that are of costly stone and of, and of concrete and of solid materials, they matter that they are part of this 
heaven and earth coming together. What you do matters. It's not a throw away the physical, we'll sail off to the spiritual, but the bodily resurrection shows us that it matters. One pastor says, how God will take our prayer, our art, our love, our writing, our music, our honesty, our daily work, our pastoral care, our teaching, our whole selves, how God will take this and weave its varied strands into the glorious tapestry of his new creation, we're not sure how that's exactly going to happen. But that he is going to do it, the fact that that is going to be part of what happens, it's part of the truth of the resurrection and perhaps one of those comforting parts of it all. This is why Paul says, don't let your labor be in vain. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. That's why your holiness matters. The, the righteous way of pursuing Christ, becoming like Christ, it matters. Being like Jesus in this world matters. Not simply, sometimes we think what we do matters just so we can get points with God. Whether that's, I need to earn my salvation, so I got to do these things so I can, boo, get out of here and go, that, that's why it matters. That's, no, that's, that is sealed in Jesus. That your identity, that when you stand before Jesus on that day, if your life is hidden in Christ, you, we are sealed. We don't have to earn that or build that. Like, that is sealed. So sometimes, because that's sealed, we can go, oh, cool, all right, so we're just hanging out. This doesn't matter. It matters. It matters. Because we have been called by the creator of the cosmos, who is resurrected and who reigns forever to partner with him. In the here and now, as Jesus taught us to pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we partner with Jesus in that redemptive work here as it will be in the new heavens, new earth. Do not grow tired of, of working for the sake of Christ. Do not let your labor be in vain. Stand firm. For some of us, we get bored if we're honest. We get bored. We came to Jesus, we got our story, we were baptized however many years ago, we were part of a group, volunteered, served here, and we kind of rinse and repeat. And for some of us, we get bored. And so what happens, if we don't believe this, if we believe that this world doesn't really matter, we're just going to just get out of here and go to the better place, our spirits are going to sail away to something else and this doesn't matter, then what will happen? And we see the church doing this time and time again throughout history and right now, that we end up finding emotional, meaningful connection. We, different community, different experiences, we end up finding our cause in different things here and now apart from the kingdom of Jesus. That we're like, we got that sealed one day, so let's figure out something else to do here that matters. And so our emotions and our experience, our community get connected to things like politics or to the next, whatever the next social justice initiative is. Or if we don't care about that, we get preoccupied with our own job, our own work, and our own comfort. Sometimes we're just like, I just want entertainment. I look forward to my next vacation because someday I'll have the ultimate vacation, but I got to find something to do here. And we forget why anything we did to glorify Jesus really mattered outside of its immediate practicality. If it's not super practical right now, it doesn't matter. I'll find something else to do. Don't let your labor be in vain. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. This old pastor named Eugene Peterson, he says, There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what early generations of Christians called holiness. 
that the fact that our bodies will be resurrected, that this physical is not wasted, but it matters. And we see that in the first fruits of Jesus when he rose from the dead. And we see that in the promise that he will make all things new. And that our work here contributes to that. It matters. It'll be refined on the day. It calls us to holiness. Don't let your labor for the Lord be in vain. Because you know that it's not. I think moms, the way that you mother your children, the investment that no one sees because it's just you and them. It can feel like outside of them growing up to not be <laughs> crazy that it, that it doesn't matter. It matters. It matters. Dads, your, your presence with your family, with your even when you're tired and you come home, and you're like, I don't know if they're going to notice. It matters, not just the practicality. It matters. Your, your honesty, your attitude, your speech, your reliability at work, it matters. Working out the complications and the pain in your marriage, investing in that, saying we are not going to let this thing be torn apart, it matters. Your relationships, the way we treat people, the way we treat those that can do nothing for us, the, the way we speak about people, the way we view people, not as problems, but as humans, it matters. Your response to the news, to the culture, our anger, our participation, maybe if we want to bear our heads, it matters. What you create to benefit the good world around us, it matters because the question is, are we building with things that are going to be burned up? Are we building with things by investing our life in Christ, giving ourselves fully to the Lord? It matters. Not, not just then and there someday, but here and now, it matters. One pastor says, if it's true that God is going to transform this present world and renew our whole selves, bodies included, then what we do in this present time with our bodies and with our world matters. For far too long, many Christians have been content to separate out future hope from present responsibility. But that is precisely what Paul refuses to do. His full-bodied doctrine and promise of resurrection sends us back to our present world and our present life of bodily obedience to the Lord in the glorious but sobering knowledge that, that if there is continuity between who we are and what we are in the present and who we are and what we'll be in the future, that we cannot discount this present life, this present body, and the present world as irrelevant. It matters. That in light of our hope, in light of the responsibility of the bodily resurrection, as we close, there's a couple things that I think that, that kind of show up. Is that we take sin seriously. We take sin seriously. That the story that we read in scripture is that the sin of one man caught, it wrecked the universe. Through the sin of one man, Romans 5 tells us, all have, all have died. That our sin mars and it taints and it corrupts and it hurts. And we are called to be people of the new creation. And we are called to be people that we look forward to our resurrection to be people of restoration, of healing as we pray that heaven will be done on earth. That we are the hands and the feet of the resurrected Christ. That we pursue holiness that we pursue living in a way of Christ-likeness. Not so we can earn something, not so we can prove something, but we want to let what is true in heaven become ever-present on earth until Jesus makes all things new, that, that we take our sin seriously. That we take our sin seriously. 
Paul says in Romans that, that we mortify, that we kill our sin as we let what is going to be true about us play out here and now. That, that the bodily resurrection, that we take our sin seriously, but it points us to the fact that we take others seriously. C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. He says, nations, cultures, arts, civilization, those are mortal. And their life is to our life as of a gnat, because those things are going to disappear. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That we're not just interacting with, with people that are just obstacles, that are just annoying. Sometimes like, I'm never going to see that person again. I'm not going to... But the bodily resurrection shows us that we must take others seriously. Because in John 5, this is sobering, my friends. In John 5, Jesus tells us that I'll be resurrected. That those that put their faith in Jesus, that have been recreated, that have new life in Christ. Because my friends, when Jesus makes all things new, he's not letting sin and corruption into his new world, into new heavens, new earth. You would lock your doors at night. You wouldn't let it into your house. Jesus ain't going to let it into his new creation. That those that put their faith in Jesus, created new, sin dealt with, buried, new life raised, resurrect to be with Jesus forever. But those that have not, that are not made new, that still bear the weight of our sin, will be resurrected to life separate from Jesus. That's what we see. That's the picture that we see. Jesus says it's John 5. John chapter 5. Go read it. This shows us that we take others seriously here and now because this is the future, not just when we die, but of the world. This is what everything is coming to is the restoration of all things. Take sin seriously. We take others seriously. This shows us that we take Jesus seriously. This all happens through the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus will rule and reign as king and put all enemies under his feet, that we have victory through Christ. It is all centered. It begins, ends, falls, rises on the person of Jesus. Paul says to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. Yes, the power of his resurrection in participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That we take Jesus seriously. So as we suffer in this body, as we strive in this body, what Paul calls a tent, that we take the words of Jesus seriously that we take the promise of Jesus seriously, that we take the hope of Jesus seriously because he is the king and he is the first fruits of what is to come. You pray with me today, Jesus. This is a wild passage. And for some of us, Jesus, as we, as we think of our own passing, as you think of where the world is headed to, sometimes it can be vague, it can be abstract, but Jesus, this picture of the resurrection of the dead, the bodies that you give us, begin to give us clarity. Not that we're going to get out of here and none of this matters, but Jesus, it matters. And that day when you come, Jesus, that we, we want to be watchful. We want to be working. 
We don't want the investments of what our life is built upon to, to fade and burn away, but we want it to, to matter. Jesus is that you recreate all things as we, as we see the restoration of all things, new heaven, new earth, that our labor is not in vain when we give ourselves to you. And so Jesus, I pray that you would give us vision, that you would stir a hope deep within us that changes the way that we live here and now. That what is true will be present here. It's because of Christ we pray.